Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Happiness Journey with Dr. Dan podcast, where every journey is worth living. My name is Dr. Dan, and I'm your host for today's episode. I'm a bilingual neurolinguistic programming and cognitive behavior psychotherapist specializing in anger management issues, both court-appointed and private, marriage counseling using the EFT method, dissociative disorders, narcissistic personality disorders, depression, anxiety, dream analysis, and also provide life, business, and retirement coaching support. I provide individual one-on-one sessions in both French or English and also do group settings. If you need any assistance, reach out to DMV Therapy and Coaching Services at 301-325-1550, and our website can be found at lifecoachdenamzalag.com. Today, I'm very excited to have for our fourth episode of season 19, a very special guest and school psychologist, Dr. Evelyn Latore. And just like every of my past episodes, I will leave it up to the guests to properly introduce themselves as no one can do a better job. Evelyn, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, Yes, I was a school psychologist for probably 16 years and then became a a special education administrator. And even before that, I was a school social worker. And I really believe that the mental health services are very important in the schools. Um, I have written uh, two books. The second book is a lot about being a social worker and a psychologist in the schools, uh, primarily in California. And um, and uh, my background is that in order to be a school psychologist, you take a lot of classes. But the last uh, degree I earned was in multicultural education. I earned my doctorate in, in that. And that gave me a lot of information about how you educate a variety of, of uh, children and, and young adults. Beautiful. Well, Doc. Thank you so much for being here today. As you know, the happiness journey is all about helping people find happiness despite the challenges that they face. And I'm sure that now after the pandemic, we have seen a tremendous uptick of mental illnesses, either those who were dealing with mental illness, but because it was stigmatized, they were kind of like shoving it under the rug, not addressing it. And then now post-pandemic, we see a lot more people that are comfortable in expressing or, or telling people that they are they do have mental issues, and yet finding a therapist to be able to treat those issues has become increasingly challenging. So l- let's go back into um, your uh, career as a school psychologist. How do you find now, uh, doctor, the, the, the problem, the epidemic and mental illness when it comes to kids at your time when you were teaching or when you were helping the, the kids in school versus now? Oh, I think it's gotten progressively worse, or maybe it's just that we're noticing it more. We're listening more and and noticing where children's problems begin. And uh, I can remember when I first started out in 1970, I would spend weekends meeting with uh, children. I would reward them saying that we would do something special on the weekend. And that's when I really would get to know them Uh, in the schools. Uh, they would get sent to me and and like you, I, I would counsel them. Uh, but then for a while, I had a private practice where I would also see the parents and the children. And um, again, you study a lot about what is the origin of the anger or uh, the acting out uh, or, or why they're not learning uh, when they have the capacity to learn. So um, just having someone that and this is true of adults too, uh, to listen to. And it's been exacerbated by the pandemic because so many people, you know, were 
were left alone. And in fact, statistics say there's been a, a huge increase in loneliness. I assume that's among adults, but I think it, it, it works for children too. And I belong to a great many, well, several educational organizations. And I know during the pandemic, uh, the teachers were just really challenged by uh, having, having a connection with their students and I think that's why why it it got worse during the pandemic because there wasn't that personal connection. It was through the computer. That's so true. Now, um, let me let me ask you. Like, that's going to be basically a challenging question at this point. Um, but is it true, based on the educational system in the United States or anywhere around the world, um, that teachers do no longer want to be able to deal with difficult children? So when they face something like that, they just put the kid either on Ritalin. ADHD or, or Adderall to be able to treat the problem instead of really understanding where it originates from. So is that true that it was during your time as well where they were just prescribing those medication and before treating the kid and finding out what is the real problem? I, would, I wouldn't say that the teachers didn't want to find out. They didn't have the background to, to ascertain where where the problem came from. And that's why you needed social workers and psychologists to help uh, interpret what the symptoms were and and then find out what was going on in the child's life and kind of to see the world from the child's point of view. Uh, childhood can be very fearful if you don't have a secure uh, uh, you know, background or you know, you don't if if you don't feel secure. Um, I grew up in Montana, a very small town. And um, I, 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 when counseling students later in California, I remember uh, a girl that was being ostracized by her her schoolmates, and I related to her an incident where the whole school was against me. Uh, and this is a oh, I don't know how many students, maybe I don't know how many students were in the school, but it it was a small small school, and it was K no, it wasn't. It was first grade through twelve uh, in Ismay. Montana, where I grew up. And and because I'd had that experience and she listened to me, I think she was able to go out and and the kids still were mean to her, but I think it just could change her perspective. Like she'll live through it. That's the kind of thing that you want to give kids and adults hope that that, you know, this isn't going to be their life forever. Right. That's true. So, but my question here, based on your story, why were they against you? What did you do to be able to create this kind of like well i have a big imagination i always have had and and so uh an incident happened uh at the creek i don't know how explicit i should be it mm -hmm. i i you know interestingly enough i wrote about it and then i took the chapters out of my memoirs because it just didn't fit but it had an impact on me and what happened was we were at a picnic and I saw some boys grab a very developed girl by her breasts and pull her off a log. And that shocked me. I was in about the sixth grade because I grew up in a very uh, Catholic home, uh, church every Sunday. And I I just was shocked. And so I, uh, with another friend, said we should tell her mother. So we went to her mother <laughs> and I blurted out, I said, and they probably pulled her pants down too. <laughs> oh, Which, okay. And you could see why. So the next day, so the mother uh, told the daughter that I had been buying what I had said. And then she told the other kids 
And and before that, though, I think what happened was before that, in uh, catechism classes, we would have uh, classes, religious classes every summer, and the priests would ask, well, who's never committed a mortal sin? And I would raise my hand because he was going to give a rosary or he was going to give a gift and I wanted the freebie. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, so they knew they knew that. And I think it, it fell on me really uh, doubly because I was such a goody two shoes. Yes. And here, I, and I but see, I had said probably that was my out. And I stuck to my guns. I would not say that I had lied. They were saying I was a liar. And because they interpreted it, that it, that's what had happened. And now that I look back and I can see with kids, I could see where that could happen. But at the time, I really got physically ill. Uh, I didn't want to go to school. Uh, my mother was very empathetic, but I had to go to school. I could take a different route to school so that you know I wouldn't have the kids chasing after me all the time. And I got through it. I got through it. Um, but uh, no, there are traumatic things that that happen to kids that they don't understand. And I think they need adults there supporting them and helping them understand, you know, what's happening and that, you know, life will go on. Mm -hmm. I, I remember a, a young man that I counseled, I think he was about in the sixth grade and he had made an attempted suicide uh, and and I, so I was, and he would not go to any other counselor than me because he knew me at the school. And that happens. You, you build relationships with the kids that you are, are working uh, at school with. And so I asked him, I said, well, what did you think would happen uh, if you weren't there anymore, if you had succeeded? And he really thought that he would be able to look down from above and see that his mother was favoring his sister and that he wasn't being treated right. So you have to get inside and see how the, the child is thinking. That's and okay. yeah, but anyway, so. So um, do you think that if the, the government invests more in having the proper support, such as more psychologists or counselors or social workers in school, do you think that in the future we will see less mental illnesses that we see now? Oh, yes. I think especially if they use programs that teach children how to look at their problems that will serve them for the rest of their lives. Okay. Um, there, there are a lot of good programs. I can't name them right now because the names keep changing. But uh, there are some very good programs that that teach children um, negotiation skills that that show them. Uh, to how to take apart something like if someone is being really mean to them to mm -hmm. figure out. I remember my own son when he was in junior high and would come home that somebody was uh, bullying him. And I, I, I don't know if this is right or not, but I said, okay, find out what's going on with he, the, the kid that's bullying you because it's his problem and, and it shouldn't be going on. He survived fine, but um, yeah, there are just a lot of ways that uh, children and adults, you know, um, adults think it's some kind of a, a negative thing to to go for counseling. And I think more that children see that parents will avail, avail themselves of services, uh, then, then maybe children will be more open to it. But do you think that now um, that we, like, if we talk about the bullying part, do you feel that if, let's say, there's more policy regarding bullying, um, in schools, that is, do you feel that this is going to certainly change the way that people interact with each other, especially young kids? Because I'm not sure if they have the brain developed enough to understand um, social skills that they have with each other. It's mostly like um, they're they're bothering one kid because <clears throat> either the kid is not 
smart enough or good looking enough or this or whatever it is, that's never going to change. So how can we enforce the, the, the zero uh, tolerance of bullying? Well, you can make rules and then there can be consequences if, if those rules are broken. And I think most schools do have rules that, you know, uh, no bullying policy. But what I think has a greater effect is when you, if if you can get the kids in a group and they examine why the bullying is happening, you know, uh, something definitely is happening with the person who's the bully. And um, it, 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 but it takes time. That That's the other thing. It, it isn't a quick fix. Sure. And um, so Yes, I think it would be good if there was more money putting put into mental health in general mm-hmm. in our society. But our society doesn't always value that. I, mean, I think there are societies that do value, you know, looking at behavior and uh, nipping bullying in the bud. And and I know that the schools do try to do that, but a lot of times the schools themselves turn out t- to be like a bully. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> That's not a good way. It's just like in in a family, uh, my father would say, uh, do as I say, not as I do. Well, that doesn't necessarily work. I mean, kids see what their parents do and how they talk, and then they they think that's, they, they imitate it. And so I think schools need to uh, be more democratic and listen to their teachers. Teachers are very wise. That's the thing I learned as a psychologist is that um, the, the, the teachers get to know the children very, very well. And again, if you teach the teachers what they don't know about behavior, then sometimes they're able to to help the child because they're closer to the child than the psychologist. Is. Most schools, uh, the psychologist is there maybe one day a week, at least when I was a practicing school psychologist. I mean, I had five schools, so. Yes, you know. that's true. But here's the big problem as well, uh, doctor, is that there's a huge generational gap between um, when I was in school, I'm a Generation X versus the millennials right now, um, or even those, I'm not sure if it was the next generation after that. But do you feel that before, when let's say I was in school and I was getting into trouble and the teachers were telling my parents, my parents were coming home like, like Hitler and basically beating the hell out of me. But yet now, if anything happens, is the parents will go and yell to the teacher, how dare you put an F to, uh, for my son's exam or how dare you this? So the, the teacher is like basically stuck in between two rocks here because they couldn't oh. discipline the kid. The parents will go and reprimand the teacher instead of reprimanding the kid. They will go and talk to the school administrator to say, this teacher is worthless. We don't need them. Take them out or fire them, whatever it is. So what is really the amount of power that a teacher can actually have with uh, students nowadays? Well, again, it it depends on relationships that the school builds with the parents. I think the parents have to learn to trust the people in the schools. And you want to have a a relationship before there's a problem. Um, I have another example of exactly what you're saying. At one point, I was put in as a counselor in a middle school, and uh, I was asked by the principal to have the meeting of with the parents of the students who had uh, failed a competency test. It was a, a group test, and 
for some reason I had lost my voice. Maybe it was psychological, but I could hardly croak. You know, I could, I, I was really croaking, but I was trying to have this meeting with the parents and I, I maybe knew some of them, but they, they, again, I was just a counselor at the school. They didn't know me well. And immediately they were blaming the teachers for the children not passing this competency test. Mm -hmm. And I was, what I was, had gone there with are ways that uh, they could work with their kids so that the kids would pass the test. They didn't want to hear any of that. They just wanted to blame. And that's true in a lot of groups that, that it just somehow, if you can blame now, sometimes the blame is, is founded. I mean, their point was, well, if they're not passing the test it's because the teachers aren't teaching them what they need to know, hmm. but that, that wasn't the case with all the students. I mean, I knew uh, some of the students had missed a lot of school, uh, didn't do their homework, all, all the things that happened. And the parents need to look at that first or at the same time, at least to see, you know, what their child is doing again, like you, I grew up, well, I did. And I didn't, uh, again, in Montana, I remember I came home with a grade. My parents wanted us to get good grades and, and would, uh, praise us for it. But I remember once I came home and I, had, was disappointed because of something a teacher had had uh, given me a, a grade that I didn't deserve, and I had proof. And my parents listened to me, and I don't want to say they took my side. They didn't go running up to the school right away, but it it was worth worth. I mean, I I to this day I remember that I was so surprised that my parents would listen to my side. I just expected mm -hmm. them to immediately. Yeah take the teacher side. So it has to be balanced. You can't just jump on your kid. You've got to know what the circumstances and, you know, do they have a place to study? And I mean, all, all there are lots of things written about what helps students, you know, in but, school. Yes. But you know what, as well, maybe you may agree or disagree, uh, Evelyn, I'm not sure exactly how your parents were with you, but now in, um, in our society, we see parents are becoming friends with their kids instead of being parents to their yes. kids. And that yeah. itself creates this misunderstanding about the roles and responsibilities of each. And because of that, the, the kid feel that, oh, well, look, mom, she's my enemy. So then the friend, which is the parent, are going to go to the side of the kid and not really reprimand the kid for, being in for going into trouble. So that's what we see now. The big, I would say, misunderstanding of those roles is because this is happening and parents no longer know how to be parents. Yeah. Well, I had studied psychology. So in raising my kids, I knew that you have to hold the line, that you have to have structure and uh, hold your kids accountable. Yes. And um, I think it's just parenting is hard. It's difficult. And especially I think it gets harder. I mean, it looks to me from you know a vantage point, my kids are grown now, but um, it, it looks to me like it gets harder, especially with the social media influences. And so it's harder for parents to to hold the line and, and, and but you've got to do it in the early years because mm -hmm. um, once they get to a certain age, you know, later teen years, they, they listen to their peers. They don't listen so much to their parents, even though you want them to. That's and, uh, you know, if you put that foundation in there that, you know, there are consequences for their actions sure. and, uh, and that's how it's going to be in the real world. And then you you raise successful adults. Mm -hmm. But if you always give in and say, poor you, and, you know, then that's how the kid is going to grow up and think that's how the world is and expect that from the world. So 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. It, it, it is, it, parenting is difficult, I think. And, and especially to do it and hold the line. And uh, I don't want to call it tough love because I think it's more, you do need to listen to your kids, uh, but you do need to have certain standards and rules too. That, that's correct. But then at the same time, um, this, this gap that is happening between parents and kids because of both different generation, our method of thinking is different than the way that the kids are thinking right now, especially like you said, the influence of social media, that's never going to disappear anytime soon. It's actually going to get worse. So, and you said after a certain age, the age that you're talking about where you basically lose complete grip of your kids when it comes for them to be able to start thinking for themselves, is there like a specific one that you are commonly aware of? I mean, I mean the, yeah. the age that... yeah, when I was in the schools and even when I was being a parent, I would say past middle school, once I get into high school, but it may have gone lower than that now. Again, it, it depends on how, how, I mean, I, I, it just seems like kids are maturing too quickly. I, I mean, I, growing up in a, an isolated place in Montana, I mean, I could be a kid until, until I moved to California. I mean, I had a long childhood. I think sometimes the childhood of kids these days is much too short, especially if, if they're uh, being influenced by, you know, what's going on in the world. And um, I, to tell you the truth, I'm retired now. So I, I only know what's happening through the teachers and groups that, that I'm a part of. And I thought, wow, do they have a difficult job as do parents. Mm -hmm. And I am not counseling at this point. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to give a lot of advice because I'm not in the thick of it as I used to be. And I know things have changed. And unfortunately now because of, uh, electronics and access to social media, as you mentioned now, like for example, even my son, he's five years old. Hmm. If he doesn't get his tablet to be able to watch, of course, we only have limited access to certain channels. So we're going to have uh, kids for YouTube or YouTube for kids, for example. So that's going to be more educational, but still it, it became a drug. And because of this cycle that continues and the parents are too afraid to say no, then that mm -hmm. continues to a point where, well, no, if you don't give me the tablet, I'm going to have a tantrum. So that in itself creates repercussion to things that should have been done proactively versus reactively. Uh-huh. Yeah, at five, yeah, that's 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 very young, but they still uh, need to know. I mean, for example, if you're taking the tablet away because it's time to sleep, I mean, I remember those struggles, and I'm sure they continue. The kids, some kids, you know, don't want to go to sleep when they're supposed to, you know, go to sleep. So yeah, no, that 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 is a, a problem. I'm trying to think of what my teachers are saying now. Well, most of the teachers that I hear complaining a lot are in high school where they teach in high school, which um it can be really challenging. I mean, all all the grades, I mean, I, I think most of the elementary teachers um stay in elementary because they really do like the attachment to the kids. And in high school, you don't get quite the same attachment even though i think the kids still still do need you know attachment to meaningful uh teachers especially i mean as you probably know uh, there are some kids some adults 
who say that had it not been for a teacher, they they could not have made uh, a worthwhile life. That's true. That's, the whole I did have true. a very impactful teacher as well for myself. So yes, I do understand this point and and I will thank them for the rest of my life because they impacted me in a very deep level in which I'm not sure if it was the reason why I went into uh, therapy, um, but more because I think the desire to, their desire to help people brought me that desire to help others as well. So it's kind of like paying it forward in some sort. So, um, but overall, when, when it comes to the, the future of um, the role of counselors in school, do you think that they're, gonna, they're going to put more effort into helping kids at their young age? Or do you feel that this is something that the parents should, because education should happen at home first before the school. So do you think that this is going to change anytime soon? It seems to vary from state to state. Uh, California a long time ago uh, lowered the amount of money that goes to schools. They've recently, uh, teachers have banded together and gotten uh, propositions passed where they have to put more money into the schools. But then the administrators um, have a say in where that money goes too. Hmm. So um, uh, I don't know. I wish I had a crystal ball. I, I, I have to say um, uh, my youngest son, who's 52, uh, just told us recently that he's going to be a father oh. and it's to a special needs child, which is ironic because all my sisters are special ed teachers and I was a special ed administrator, uh, a Down syndrome boy. Now he lives in New York and he is very comfortable that New York puts a lot of uh, money where their mouth is and that child will have a good education. But not all states will put, you know, money for special needs kids or for counseling. I mean, you know, mental health is a very important um, thing. It's just like a lot of the uh, adults don't have access to to mental health things. I highly recommend parents taking classes in child development. I think that helps a lot in understanding how to raise your child. And that certainly helped me. I was going to graduate school when I had my kids and studying psychology. And I think that helped me raise two healthy boys. Mm -hmm. um, and then my youngest son has done a lot of therapy that so, you know, I'm a, I'm a therapy advocate. I mean, uh, I think when people do need uh, the service, they should seek for it and not let li things linger because it's just going to get worse and worse. Yes. But to conclude this podcast, where can people, I know you wrote a book. What was the, the, the book about? The yeah, this uh, my, it's my second memoir. It's uh, Love in Any Language. Okay. <laughs> the subtitle is A Memoir of a Cross-Cultural Marriage. I was in the Peace Corps in the 60s and married a Peruvian university student. And we came to the United States to live. So uh, the, this Love in Any Language is about raising children and seeing an immigrant through the process of, you know, surviving in a fast moving, a much faster moving society than what he was in. But I credit the kind of rearing that he had, uh, family support to him being a good father and a good husband. And we've been married for, you know, almost 60 years now. So it, 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 it worked. And, um, and there's a lot, most of the book is about being a psychologist, a social worker first in San Francisco schools, and then as a psychologist in the Bay Area schools for many years, and then as an administrator, so that you can learn a lot 
about not only the types of instruments that are available to understand yourself, because a lot of what a memoir is and why I wrote it is to understand where I came from and how I got to be where I am. And um, so if you want to learn about counseling and psychology in the schools, I'd say pick up love in any language, but it's a personal story at the same time. So Uh, we're going to put the description of uh, your book in the podcast, as well as the Amazon link where people can purchase it. But on that note, uh, Dr. Evelyn, that is all the time that we have for today's podcast. And I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. And thank you again for participating and inspiring our many listeners with your incredible story. Now, we hope that you've all enjoyed today's episode. And I'm also very excited about the many upcoming guests that we have scheduled for season 19 of the Happiness Journey podcast filled with inspirational stories, just like the one that you listen today. Now, here are some concluding words of wisdom. High school is a transformative chapter where all students are not just shaping their academic prowess, but also building their emotional intelligence and coping mechanism that will serve them in the years to come. Taking time to understand themselves, navigating the intricacies of their emotions, and to seek help of a counselor or psychologist when needed. Remember, strength isn't just about powering through, it's about acknowledging vulnerability and seeking support. Each one of all students are unique with their own set of dreams, challenges, and triumphs, learning to embrace their individuality, and in doing so, recognize the diverse ways in which mental health manifests. Learn to be compassionate towards yourself and others, understanding that everyone's journey is different. My name is Dr. Dan Emzelag, and you may all keep pursuing your amazing journey in life.